I reflected back, whenever I discovered this crazy, quirky world of matchmaking, my first thought was, in fact, it wasn't my first thought, it was my mum's first thought that she screamed on the phone at me. The hell are you doing? You've spent so many years working to be a business psychologist and to follow a professional career path. And what the hell do you want to work for a dating agency for? I think was pretty much her words. I thought, okay, thanks, mum. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Secret Leaders with me, Dan Murray-Serta. This is the UK startup podcast where we interview top entrepreneurs and let you in on the secret of their success. Today, I'm talking to Rachel McLinn, the founder of the Vida Consultancy, widely considered the best elite matchmaking agency in the world. They're a matchmaking service for high net worth individuals, entrepreneurs, and business people looking for long-term relationships. It's a fascinating niche. How does elite matchmaking work? What does it cost? And how do you get into it in the first place? Well, let's go back to 2006 when Rachel was working as an occupational psychologist. The actual moment that I discovered matchmaking was very much a moment of serendipity, but it there was a, um, a series of events probably starting a year before that led to it. So my father passed away suddenly whenever I had just turned 26 years old. And then that led to um, a whole spiral of changes over the next year. I was really, really devastated as I'm sure you can imagine losing my father. He, he passed away in his sleep. So I wasn't even given. Actually had exactly the same thing happen. Oh, did you? Funnily enough, yeah, 26, exactly the same experience and, uh, and, and life change over the next year. Yeah, so I've just gone a different path, but isn't that funny? How interesting. Yeah, God, you've just given me goosebumps. I was devastated when it happened, getting that phone call in the middle of the night uh, from my eldest brother. And I went through various different stages of the grieving process, as, as everyone does. But I got to the stage where I started to really question my own life. At the time, I was living up in Newcastle and my life was very much settled. I had a job as a work psychologist. I was living with my boyfriend at the time. I was doing the same thing week in, week out, living what I would say, I think I was actually just a little bit bored with what I was doing. I felt like I had a bit more in me. And I remembered my dad, you know, obviously I was thinking every day about my dad. And I remember that he used to always share really crazy stories with me about his life in London. He used to live on the King's Road in the 70s when he had qualified as a an architect. And his stories were absolutely hilarious, just brilliant and super exciting. And I remember thinking back and I thought, God, whenever I'm old, I what stories am I going to be telling my children or my grandchildren about my life? And I thought, no, I need to make some changes here because, you know, we've only got one chance of life, rather, rather, you know, that whole sort of cliche. So losing my dad, I think, really just gave me that kick up the ass to actually live my life and to to take risks and to, you know, even if things don't work out that, you know, as long as you feel that you've given everything a good shot. So anyway, I decided to leave my job. I left my boyfriend. We owned three properties together. I walked away from all of it to start a new life in London. Um, so I started looking for jobs. And then that's whenever I, I came across a job advert for a psychologist to join a matchmaking agency. And I just remember reading it and feeling like, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as a particularly spiritual person, but I, it just, it felt like my dad had kind of sent this opportunity. Uh, I had butterflies in my stomach reading it. I'll never forget that moment. And that was the moment that changed my life and, and will continue to change my life forever. So two months later, then I had moved to London 
had started working as a matchmaker for an elite agency. And um, now bearing in mind, I had grown up in the outskirts of Belfast, then moved to Newcastle and then moved to London. And I had no idea about the sort of high life in London. I I remember my my boss telling me to get in a cab and to go to South Ken. And I said, well, what is what South Ken? What is that? <laughs> she said, it's a place, you idiot. So um, like literally, I had no idea. My very first meeting, I think it was at the Dorchester, was with a hedge fund manager and I was thrown in head first. You have to profile this guy. And his first words when he walked into the room where I've just bought my second private jet. And I was like, I've, I've never experienced this world before. This is incredible. And I've never, never looked back since. So seeing that job advert was a was a complete turning point in my life. But it started from losing my dad. And, and actually, you know, I, I'm very proud and I'm sure he would be very proud of knowing that I've used a managed to turn what was a really horrendous experience of losing your father into something really quite positive. Yeah, absolutely. And and no doubt created new life in the process, right? Which is, you know, not to make you feel too spiritual about it all, but obviously a nice, a nice little uh, circle of life moment as well. So this elite agency that you stumbled into, what was the story there? How long had that been running? Who was it run by? Like, where does the journey take you from that moment? Yeah, so it was a, um, it was a startup company at the time. So I think I was the first psychologist to join the team. So it was very small. I was working from home initially until we got an office. Um, So I was very much part of the founding team. And then the business became successful over the the next few years. Uh, So I stayed for nearly four and a half years. And then I got to the stage where I was in my early 30s, I think 31, at the time. And I started to get itchy feet a little bit, I suppose is the best way to describe it. Now, I've got four elder brothers who are always enjoy giving me a bit of a guide in, in life, which is my polite way of saying, throwing their opinion at me at every given opportunity about what I should and shouldn't be doing. But my eldest brother is someone I've always really looked up to. And he had been saying to me at various different points, why don't you set up your own business because you you're doing you're so immersed in this company and you're doing every you're involved in in pretty much every part of it so you know why don't you try and set something up on your own and I always dismissed it I was like oh David don't be ridiculous I'm not an entrepreneur I was you know I I was little misconscientious at school and you know I, I like to be on a structured path but then there was also part of me thinking but I haven't followed a structured path in my career I've gone completely off piste I started to change my narrative a little bit. And then I had another really weird turning point again, when over a period of about two weeks, I had three people I knew in London, all of whom, they're all different ages. One was in his 20s, one 40s and one 60s, all successful in business, all people I looked up to, admired and respected and trusted. They don't know each other, didn't know each other. And they all had a conversation with me within a span of no more than two weeks when they all said, Rachel, have you ever thought about setting up your own business, you would make an incredible business owner. And, and why don't you, you run your own matchmaking agency? And then that was the first time that I thought, I think the penny finally dropped. I started to look, sort of map out what my future would look like. And I thought, well, if I if I set up my own business at the age of 32, 
I will, and everyone always said, you know, with your first, you have to really give everything to the first three years of a business, especially if it's, you know, being bootstrapped. So I thought, okay, well, if I start at 32, then by the time I'm 35, maybe it will be more established and I'll have some people running it for me, which means then that'll be time for me to have babies without leaving it too late. Uh, and then I can have my my children. And, you know, if it goes wrong, well, then at least I'm not, no, no one's relying on me because I haven't had a family yet. Or the alternative would be bottle it now, um, continue working as an employee and then maybe come back to matchmaking when I've had children and when my youngest child is about to start school, which is exactly the point I'm at right now. I'm 42 years old. My youngest son has just turned four years old today um, and he's due to start school in September. So if I hadn't taken that path then, I would possibly be in the planning stages right now of setting up my own agency. So I'm really glad I did it then. Yeah. And actually, before we get into the the details of how you run your business, how it all works, how did you meet your own boyfriend then? I met Jamie, who is, well, now my fiance and father to my two children. And we met through a mutual friend. So he went off traveling. He spent most of his 20s traveling, would come back to London and work for a bit, save some money and go off again. Um, So very much living the backpacking lifestyle. And he ended up in Fiji on his way to Australia. My best friend, Linda, took a year out of work and ended up in Fiji. So the two of them ended up meeting on a beach somewhere. And she came back from Fiji a few months later and she said, Rachel, I think I've met the love of your life. (laughs) And I said what on earth are you talking about? Meanwhile, I had managed to find myself a boyfriend because I was quite capable of doing that back in the day. So she hadn't met my boyfriend at the time. And uh, so anyway, this like this, this comment was kind of dismissed and laughed off. Um, and then a few months later, I um, split up with my boyfriend at the time, found myself as a single girl in London. And I was introduced to Jamie at um, a friend's barbecue. And lo and behold, we had an instant connection and uh, we're in a relationship very soon after that. So she was absolutely right. So she did indeed manage to find the love of my life. So elite matchmaking isn't necessarily for you, so who exactly is your customer? Like, how do you go about finding your customer? How you acquire them when you've got no one on your books from the starting days? I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about how all of that works dynamically. Yeah, so at the very beginning, I I mean, I was fortunate that I had had four and a half years experience of matchmaking for successful people or high net worth individuals or high achievers, lots of different ways that they can be described. But the clientele that I was used to looking after were, yeah, high achieving, successful, worldly, international, very well educated. Um, so really incredible people who live very busy lifestyles and have very high expectations. So I had that experience. And then whenever I set up on my own, my first focus was, okay, well, I need to I need to build a network of single people um, because I started with absolutely nothing other than, you know, some ideas rolling around in my head. Um, So I set myself in in the first year a target of finding 500 single people to add into my network. And if you think about the business structure, we're quite often likened to an executive search firm. 
So this would be like finding 500 candidates to put in a database, that, that, that type of process. So I set out about doing that through a lot of networking. And I thought, okay, well, if I, I know that if I go to a networking event, I can meet so many people who are likely to be single. And um, therefore, in order to find 500 people over the course of a year, I'll need to attend three networking evenings a week. That was the, fo- the small incremental steps that I took at the very beginning and that sort of kept me focused and and disciplined. So I would then go to three networking events and, and I knew how to find them and where to find them. And they would be quite, I would be invited through maybe concierge companies or private members clubs. There's a lot of events that would be hosted at art galleries and, and places like that. So I would attend three of those a week gather some cards from people, have some really interesting conversations. Uh, and then the next day I would be on my computer following up, having phone calls. Uh, and that sort of networking, it led to me finding single people, but also just other business contacts as well. People saying, okay, well, I know someone who would make a an amazing web designer that you might want to use or an accountant or a lawyer. So, you know, all the other sort of people that you need in the background to help get a business set up as well. Um, So the usual business networking side of things. So there was um, a lot of that benefit. And then I I realized within a few months that on average, around every 50 people that I met and profiled, one of them would then approach me and ask me about, okay, well, what if I was to become an actual paying client of your service? What would that look like? And I hadn't, to be honest, whenever I set up the business, that was the one part I hadn't really sat down and thought about because the thought of finding paying clients was quite terrifying. I thought, I've got no, you know, am I going to have to spend a fortune on advertising and I haven't got the money to do it? So thankfully, I was able to find paying clients through just pure networking. The very first client that I signed up was a management consultant in the city. And initially I approached him and I said, would you, you know, I've just set my business up. I've got no network. I've got pretty much no idea what I'm doing. Um, But would you like to be profiled and, you know, sort of explain the whole thing? I was super honest Um, and he, he loved my naivety. And then he approached me a few weeks later and he said, so where are you going to make your money from? And I said, okay, well, eventually I'm going to start charging a fee to people who want me to deliver a proactive search for and and guaranteed matchmaking. It's okay, well, talk me through what that would look like. So hypothetically, if I was your client, what would you be doing? And I said, okay, well, you know, you're you're a very eligible man in his 40s and he wanted to get married and start a family. So he was looking for a partner in her mid to late 30s, uh, someone who would be an intellectual match, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of talked him through what I would be doing and explained about the, the networking events that I had access to and, and who I was sort of mingling with. And uh, and he said, so, okay, and you have no clients at the moment? And I said, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I've literally just been going for a few weeks. And he said, so if I was to pay you to become your first client, then surely I would be receiving pretty much a VIP service because I would be your only, that your main focus on everything that you're doing. I said, yeah, you would be. And he said, okay, well, how much would it cost? 8,000 for a year. And he said, okay, and wrote me a check. And that was my first client. And that, that gave me a massive confidence boost because I was not expecting that at all. And that happened within just a few weeks of getting set up. And then everything everything started to roll really from there. So the next client I signed up, I met through um, a friend of a friend and she was a woman working in the city. So then I had like two things to think about whenever I was going to a networking event, finding, looking out for men for her and looking out for women for the 
the male client and every it worked out that you just so flawlessly almost that roughly every month I would have a new client signing up and it was all through networking. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, so I was going to ask about the business model. It's interesting because it sounds like you don't know what the business model was almost like before starting. Like, you know, it was that £8,000. You had an idea in your head about what that would be. Um, but can you take us through what the business model that you learned at your, like where you trained at your previous business, what that business model was, how it worked, how it mapped out and how you changed it for yourself? Did you? Yeah. So again, the the business model for most matchmaking agencies is very similar to an executive search firm, apart from we have the added benefit of clients pay their full fee up front. Our clients will pay typically £18,000 for a 12-month service, but that's paid up front. So that, that means then that we can invest that fee immediately into the right staffing and searching, etc. So once a client then signs up, the responsibility of the matchmaker is to find matches for him or her, present the matches, set up the date, take feedback, etc. And usually what I realised over the years was that most matchmaking agencies work on a very transactional basis with their clients. So the client would, uh, you know, even for me back in, back in the day, a client would come in and they would give me their brief or, you know, sometimes they would have it written out on a piece of paper and they would hand it to me and say, this is who I'm looking for in a partner and I'd be a deer and go and find this person for me and I would nod politely and, and go off and work my socks off to find them, the right person. And then as I started to build my own confidence over the years, I've pulled more and more psychology 
into the service because it's become more apparent to me that a lot of clients think they know what they want in a partner, but they what they think they're looking for isn't actually right for them. And they need to they need to start the process in a much more systematic way by reflecting before we even start the search on who is the person that they should really be looking for and to get rid of any sort of preconceived ideas that might be slightly inaccurate. Are you saying that biceps and pecs and abs and money aren't the only things that are important in the world? I mean, there's a certain level of importance, but that's not that's not the be all and end all. Um, so a lot of people, they will instinctively, when we ask them, what are you looking for in a partner? And we'll write verbatim what they say because we want to know what they've got at the front of their mind. And, you know, a lot of people will, they'll talk about physical attributes, hair colour and eye colour and height. And society has kind of taught us that that's what we should be focusing on. Dating apps have made us believe that attraction starts with a photograph and having that quick snapshot of first impressions. And that serves a purpose to a level, certainly if you're looking for something short term. But if you want something long term, you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with, you need to dig a lot deeper. You need to reflect a, a lot more on who you're really compatible with. So we've sort of carved out five key stages of matchmaking that we take our clients through now at Vida, which again, it's none of it is rocket science, but whenever we tell people about it, they're like, ah, oh, yeah, actually, you're right. I hadn't really thought about that, that I don't know who I should really be compatible with. So yes, talk me through this. And they find it really enlightening. The first step is looking at who who they are as an individual. So what are their own core values? So we spend a lot of time doing detailed profiling. Um, so the main profiling session takes 90 minutes, but there's various other conversations that go on around that and a values exercise. And then that allows our client to really reflect on what their values and their attitudes and, and beliefs are, as well as us having the opportunity to gather the factual information that we need to just get to know them. From there, we're able to build up a profile of their ideal partner. And we will do that by asking about their preferences, but challenging to make sure that they're not putting too much emphasis on those pecs. And we'll also revert back to their previous relationships and we'll look at, OK, well, let's you know talk about your previous relationships. Who were they? You know, what were they like as, as individuals? How did you meet? You know, give us the whole story about um, you know, when you first fell in love and any, you know, when things started to, to maybe go wrong so that we can understand the whole context. And, and really from there, we're trying to work out what are the attributes that they know worked for them based on previous experience. And then, great, well, we should continue looking for those attributes in the future, but also what attributes didn't work for them so we can come up with a much more accurate representation of who they should really be looking for. And it's not like people have got, you know, are completely clueless. It's just that they will, their expectations just need a bit of fine tuning and maybe a little bit more emphasis on values that they hadn't really uh, reflected on and, and thought about before. So once we've done that, then um, that sort of defines what the person is like. And there's a lot of subjective variables in there as well. The third stage in our process then is just thinking about the actual relationship dynamic that they're looking for, which again, a lot of people don't sit down and reflect on properly. This is really important, especially for our clients, because they are quite often living a very international lifestyle. So they're moving around a lot, maybe wanting to relocate or live across different cities or countries, uh, maybe traveling for a few weeks at a time or certainly pre-pandemic they would have been. So we have quite detailed conversations around that and um, even things like your know, attitudes around raising children and, and how would 
What expectations do they have around that? And then the next step is coming up with some sort of strategy or a plan about, okay, well, now we know who the client is, the type of person they're looking for, the relationship that they want. How the hell are we supposed to find this person? Where are they? Because they could be often anywhere in the world. And that's where our networking capabilities become really valuable for our clients. Um, So we are prolific networkers in cities all over the world. um, But rather than being headhunters pulling people into jobs, we are headhunters pulling single people into our network so that we can then introduce them to our clients if we assess compatibility. So that's where we spend a huge amount of time building up that global network and smaller networks in, in individual cosmopolitan cities around the world. That's the fourth step. And then the fifth step, which is the final bit, is really where the contribution of the client comes in, that they do need to be willing to get out there and meet some people. You know, we're very good at what we do, but we're not going to match everyone successfully on their first introduction. That would be a whole different level of success. But for most of our clients, they will get into a relationship once they've met between eight to 10 people. So they need to be willing to meet eight to 10 people that we have shortlisted essentially for them so that we can reflect and ask for feedback and fine tune the type of person that we're looking for and kind of continue to steer them on this journey with the view being that with each person that they meet, every conversation that we have with them, every profile that we discuss, they are getting incrementally closer and closer to their end goal of being in a relationship with someone compatible. Got it. And so how's how's the business set up from a funding point of view? So it sounds like, you know, you bootstrap the business to begin with. Is that still the case? Uh, Yes, I set up the business on little more than a wing and a prayer, (laughs) just hoping for the best. I literally, right back at the beginning, uh, whenever I was still thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? This is like a crazy idea. I'm so scared, um, but excited about the prospect of setting up my own business. And I I had no money. So I, you know, other than like tiny, tiny bit of savings. Um, So I thought, well, I'm going to remortgage my flats. I owned a flat in Southeast London. So I put in an application to remortgage to get a very modest £20,000. And I thought, well, that's, I, I just need to have something to cushion me over the first few months while I get set up and, and start hopefully bringing in some client fees. So that became also a deciding factor for me. I thought, well, if I'm not able to to get that money, then this is obviously a ridiculous idea and I should just go and, you know, <laughs> go back to the, the good old world of, of employment. But the funds did come through Um, So then that's what gave me that very, very final push to get going. So yes, over the the first few years, very much bootstrapped clients who would pay their fee. Again, I was fortunate because clients would pay their fees up front. Um, So then I could then start to map out what was going to happen over the next few months um, of their membership. And as more fees came in, then I was able to start investing Uh, some money into growing the team, taking on a small office space after the first year. I worked my absolute socks off for the first five years. I was absolutely exhausted and then, you know, had a baby towards the the latter part of that five years as well. And then whenever we got to our fifth anniversary, we'd won a few awards and everything was going really well. You know, started to, I think I had four people working in my team. So we were still pretty small, but starting to build some traction, starting to develop a good reputation um, in London and and doing more international matchmaking as well. And that's when Nick approached me as my soon-to-be investor at the time. So he, he asked to meet me. I had no idea 
why he wanted to meet me. And um, he said that he was looking for some companies to invest in. He had been watching my business. We had met a few years earlier through another business uh, opportunity. He he said that he wanted to, and he was looking at some sort of more quirky type businesses to invest into. He's a big advocate of um, supporting women in business as well. Uh, so he's just asking me about what my plans are. And I remember he took me for lunch and he said, you know, tell me where you're at at the moment because you've you've got to five years and, you know, that's amazing. Well done. Congratulations. Not a lot of companies get to that stage. So uh, that's a big milestone. And I can see that you've won some awards. Well done and on that. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm really proud of where we've got to at the moment. He said, so you're still, you know, you've only got a team in London. Have you set your sights on maybe opening an office in New York? And I said, well, I would... I would love to set up an office in New York. That's, you know, there's the world of matchmaking is huge in America. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you try? And I said, because I don't know where to start. Um, And he explained that he was the co-founder at uh, Freud Communications. And he, as part of his time there, they had an office in, in New York that was very successful. So he said, well, look, I could help you to get set up in, in New York. I would like to invest some money, but more importantly, I'll be investing my my time and expertise and mentorship into the business so I can I can help you to get set up in New York and really that that can catapult more international expansion. So, I mean, this was just complete music to my ears at the time. And and he also did refer, I remember him saying, you know, so what what's your sort of family situation at the moment? And I said, well, I've got um, a baby who was at the time 14 months old and said, you know, I, I want to I want to have another baby within the next year ideally. Um, and he said, okay, well, you know, let's, you know, factor that in, but I can then help you rather than you feeling like you're coasting. I can help to catapult your international, international growth. So it seemed like an offer that was too good to be true. Uh, we signed the deal a few months later after a little bit of back and forth. At that point, I was pregnant with my second baby. I then had Archie on the 3rd of June, four years ago and took three months, well, supposedly three months maternity leave. But when you're running a business, it's never really is maternity leave. It's three months working from home is what I was doing. And then um, whenever I finished maternity leave, I came back into the office in Mayfair for four days just to get my head back into work a little bit and get used to being away from Archie during the day. And then I got on a plane to New York. Uh, Nick was in uh, LA at the time. So he flew out from LA to New York and met me there. And uh, and then we spent a week in New York getting the, the New York office set up, which was again, just another massive milestone for me and for the business and very, very emotional for me having, having to leave a three month old baby at home and um, my other son who was two at the time. But presumably you've got someone there running the show in, in America, right? Yes, yes. We arrived in New York on a Sunday evening and we were staying until I think the following Saturday morning. And I didn't have very much in my diary that week. So I remember having a bit of a flip out with Nick thinking, why are we going to New York? Like, I don't, what are we doing when we get there? This all, you know, was feeling like a little bit weird. And I'd sort of like to have everything planned out. And I remember he said, Rachel, don't worry, when you get to New York, things just happen. And I'll never forget him telling me that message because, oh my God, things really did happen at monumental speed that week. So the very first meeting that we had, we stayed in the, it's called the Roxy Hotel in downtown Manhattan. Our very first meeting on the Monday morning was with Gina, 
who had received a newsletter that we had sent out to our database saying, you know, we're, we're coming to New York, we're setting up an office. If you'd like to join our network, I'd like to become a client, get in touch. And one of our one of our clients picked up that email and sent it across to Gina and they knew each other. Uh, and Gina had been working as a matchmaker in New York for two or three years previously. So she had matchmaking experience and, and she wanted to get involved in a business that would allow her to be more entrepreneurial and would also give her more uh, exposure to international matchmaking. And, and she, she had only ever really looked after clients within Manhattan itself. So we booked in a meeting half eight on the Monday morning and I remember I'd you know barely slept and I was feeling very emotional and very tired and a bit confused about what the hell, the hell was going to happen while we were on this trip in New York. And I remember Gina swanned in to the room and pretty much just floated along the room and, and sat down and she was so perfectly presented and this gorgeous big beaming smile and just absolutely full of beans and enthusiasm. And within about 20 minutes, told us um, her whole plan on, you know, everything that she had researched about the business and everything she had thought about, you know, this is how I'm going to make your business really successful in New York. And this is why you need me and your team. And I just remember thinking, where the hell did she come from? This is like some kind of, I feel like I'm in a movie. And it was the most, honestly, the most straightforward business conversation I've ever had. Now, Nick's contribution to that was absolutely crucial. I will always thank him for that because he he knew what questions to ask. He's a very quick thinker, a very quick decision maker. So he just cut through the bullshit and got straight to, what do you want? <laughs> what, do you, what are your expectations, Gina? What do you want to get paid? How do you want to be remunerated? How do you want to be rewarded? So she answered the questions and said, okay, well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, why don't you come and meet Rachel and I at our new office at 2.30 this afternoon? So she left at half nine in the morning, went off to do some of her own work. 2.30 in the afternoon, she came to meet us at this new office space. So we'd signed a lease for an office space, even though we had no team or anything to put in it, which again, I was having kittens over. So Gina walked in and, and in the meantime, Nick and I had had the, the sort of conversation in between. So she sat down and, and Nick said, okay, well, we would like to offer you the position and these are the terms. And what do you think? And she said, well, there, there was no negotiation needed because we just came to an immediate mutual agreement. Uh, so straightforward. So Gina, again, was thinking all of her dreams had just come true. She said, by the way, I'm also getting married this weekend. So this is amazing for me. I'm going to go off this this weekend, get married, go on a three week honeymoon. And then I'm going to come back, work out my two weeks notice at her existing company and then start this amazing new opportunity, setting up our, our first US office. So she was all, all excited about that. I was all excited. Nick was on his phone and I remember slapping his hand. I was like, Nick, what are you doing on your phone? And he said, I'm just texting. I'm texting my lawyer to uh, get the contracts drafted. So we'll have the drafts ready by the end of the week. And I was like... Everything was set up so smoothly. There was no back and forth, no negotiation, no like headache. Gina went off, got married. And then and then came back to run the company. When you're pitching to someone like her and indeed Nick, like what is in your mind, what is the big vision and how big can you take it and how big do you want to take it? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because I um I still think to this day, I'm very confident about the potential of the business, but I don't think I even recognize our true potential. Every year, my eyes open that little bit wider of thinking, okay, well, we've achieved whatever extra milestone and now let's see where we can where we can take it. And for me, I think the most crucial part of being able to grow 
the business is having the most amazing team and that takes time. So even if someone was to throw a ridiculous amount of investment into the business, I would still, my main focus would still be, I need to find really, really supreme matchmakers and coaches and and business people to bring into the business. And I want to get it absolutely right. So I'm not in a desperate rush, but I am ambitious. Everyone else in the team is is um, sort of wanting to grow at a similar pace. I have my new business partner in London. Well, she's been with the business for, for seven years, Mia, but she's very much my sidekick and our operations director. And maybe between the two of us, like we we make an excellent duo, if I do say so myself, because I'm a very strategic thinker and I will keep making sure that the brand is on point and that our clients are very well looked after and the, we're bringing in the right team. So I will be making those big strategic decisions. But Mia is just amazing at the doing part and she will she's been working so hard over the last few years at putting all the systems and processes in place which are now pretty much polished and everything internally is amazing so we're now at this sort of stage where I think we are going to catapult growth we are in the process of setting up an office in California so we've had Sarah there starting to build that up since January and we're looking for more Gina's and more Sarah's at various different uh, locations around the world. And we can start to do that simultaneously rather than one at a time. So I think over the next three to five years, we'll go from being a, a very solid seven figure business to quite soon being an eight figure business. And when you think about your uh, journey so far, what would you say have been the biggest challenges in general? I think one of our biggest challenges is we don't get to keep our clients for a lifetime. We have to keep finding new clients because most of our clients only stay with us for 12 months and they're expensive to acquire. So we spend an awful lot of money on advertising and marketing. That's a a kind of fairly unique challenge. Most services will be able to retain clients maybe for a longer period. The reputation of the industry as well is a bit of a blessing and a curse, to be perfectly honest, because the industry isn't regulated. So there are a lot of rogue matchmakers out there and a lot of people have been burnt by rogue matchmakers and therefore they they either don't come to us at all or they do come to us, but they're very, very sceptical. So we have to take them from a position of, of a lot of doubt and gradually build up their confidence and faith in our service. But equally, I see that as a bit of a blessing as well and a bit of an opportunity because I think that there is, well, we've been able to carve out a very clear path for our our team and our business to be able to set a very, very high standard for the industry that is influencing some of the the up and coming matchmakers who want to deliver to an equally high standard. And and that's a really nice thing to be able to do. Most matchmakers only operate within a particular city or like quite a closed off geographical area. Um, So huge opportunity for us as well. And that's where I've put in so much time and effort over the last few years is building these networks in different cities around the world so that we can really look after clients who want that true international experience. And there's very, very few matchmakers out there that can do that. What would your advice be to listeners that are interested in becoming an entrepreneur, interested in running a business, fascinated by the various many niches in this world and haven't necessarily gone after it yet? What would you say to people like that about uh, how to follow in your footsteps? My advice to anyone that is considering following an entrepreneurial path and maybe exploring something really niche is no matter where you're at in your career, bring yourself back 
to what was it that inspired you to get into the earlier stages of your career or whatever decisions that you've made? Because for me, I reflected back whenever I discovered this crazy, quirky world of matchmaking, my first thought was, in fact, it wasn't my first thought, it was my mum's first thought that she screamed on the phone at me the hell are you doing? You've spent so many years working to be a business psychologist and to follow a professional career path. And what the hell do you want to work for a dating agency for? I think was pretty much her words. I thought, okay, thanks, mom. I remember thinking back to why, why am I even working as a work psychologist? Well, that came from my interest in psychology. Why did I want to study psychology? Because I was interested in people. I've always been fascinated by people. I I love, uh, I'm an introvert by nature. I love communicating with people on a one-to-one basis. I've always been a natural problem solver. I've always been the agony aunt of my group of friends. So I studied psychology because of my fascination with people. I've always been a deep romantic at heart. My mum and dad were very much in love until my father sadly passed away. Um, So I had a very strong influence of relationships growing up. I didn't know a single person who got divorced until I was well into my adulthood. So when I got to that stage of, you know, I followed a particular path because I, you know, as I said earlier on, I'm a conscientious person, always have been that, you know, I wanted to get to university. And then after I did my degree, I wanted to specialize to make sure I was off to a very strong starting point in my career. And I chose business psychology at the time, but equally I could have been persuaded to maybe follow another area of psychology if that opportunity had presented itself. And then I was very fortunate to get into a career as a work psychologist from the minute of, of leaving university. But even though I was on a very, very set, strong path and I was on a very, a very positive career trajectory and, you know, I'm sure I would be a successful business psychologist had I, you know, today, if I had stuck to that path, I don't believe that you have to stick to something just because that's what you started. If you feel that you've got something entrepreneurial in you, then allow the path that you've taken to serve as a as a platform to maybe catapult you in a slightly different direction and as long as you are following a path that allows you to do something that you really enjoy something that you're good at something that you believe that you can be successful at you know there is an uh, there you feel that there's an opportunity out there well then go for it because that's how so many entrepreneurs get started and hit success listen to your gut and follow your instinct because you've only quite often there will only be one chance at really giving it your best shot awesome thank you rachel and then finally to our 100 plus uh you know 100 plus leaders of uh, some of the top companies in the whole world some of whom are a single where could they go to find vida so our website is the vidaconsultancy.com please get in touch if you're single looking for a compatible long-term partner i'd be very happy to have a chat with you Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. Next week on Secret Leaders. You got to believe and keep going. I'm a product of that. And any entrepreneur that's been successful is a product of that. It's not like you have the idea, you map it out, and then all of a sudden it goes as planned. Hell no. Absolute hell to the no. You got to go all the way in and you're going to be naked and you're going to be afraid and you can't sleep at night sometimes. There's going to be a lot of different things. And then you get to the other side and you realize you figured it out. That was Steve Stout, the founder and CEO of United Masters, a startup turning the music industry on its head. Steve had seen the problems facing artists firsthand, having been the manager or producer for stars like Nas, Gwen Stefani, Will Smith, and many more. Do you want to know why Puff Daddy smashed a bottle of champagne over his head? Tune in next week or you'll miss out. 
This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.